Hello. Welcome one and all to another episode of the Beatles Books podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest today is John Mitchinson, who joins me to discuss that behemoth of Beatles literature, the Beatles anthology book. John Mitchinson has worked in publishing for decades. He helped to found the TV panel game show QI and has co-written all their books. He was Waterstone's first marketing director and he has held senior publishing roles at Orion, Cassell and Harville. He co-hosts the Backlisted podcast with Andy Miller, who I was also lucky enough to have on the pod to discuss Hunter Davies' Beatles biography. John discusses his role in publishing the anthology book, his dealings with Neil Aspinall in this period, and the strengths and weaknesses of the book as a whole. We also discuss some of John's favourite and not-so-favourite Beatles books, including his views on the Beatle book of the moment, Craig Brown's one, two, three, four. John Mitchison, hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How do we find you? Very well, uh, extremely well. We're here, uh, essentially, to talk about the Beatles Anthology book, uh, which I'm sure you'll be pleased to be reminded was published over 20 years ago now. Um, <laughs> Seems we, like only yesterday. I'm, sh- I'm sure it does, John, I'm sure it does. Before we get to that, I was hoping we could just... Uh, dive a little bit into your kind of Beatle background um if you if you if you could share with us your kind of initial memories of of the Beatles and if you could were there any kind of Beatle books that that stood out to you when you were when you were kind of first discovering them well that I mean my my one of my very earliest memories of I was been about uh, I was born in 1963 so I suppose I would have been uh, seven. Um, so it's not one of my earliest memories, but I have a really clear memory of walking across the road with my, hand in hand with my mum. And her, my mum, she wasn't exactly crying, but I could see she was really upset. She said, The terrible news, the Beatles have split up. And I can remember thinking that to me at that stage, what the Beatles were were the people, my favourite song around about that kind of period was Yellow Submarine, which I used to sing endlessly, much to the annoyance of my parents and grandparents. So I think like a lot of people, I had, you know, the Beatles were on in the background in the, if you were a kid in the 60s, mm. a lot. Uh, my mum had been to the cavern and seen them, which was a story that she always told, you know. And of course, as a kid, it was like, oh, shut up, mum. But now you think, oh, my God, can you, can you, well, you know. So it, it's one of those family stories that, that gets more exciting the, the older you get, the more extraordinary you, you realise mm. it, it, it is to have done that. So... I don't think that my my um, my early experiences with them were really with the Beatles were they were definitely coming to the music properly in my late teens like a lot of people do, and you know we were punks so right. we weren't really supposed to be listening to the Beatles, um, but then this extraordinary thing happened. I left. I was I've done most of my secondary school. We emigrated to New Zealand when I was twelve, and I. I was in New Zealand and I came, I was coming back for the first time to go on what I suppose now you'd call a gap year. I didn't really have a sense of, of that then, but I was coming back to the UK. I was very excited. And I, I remember we, I was traveling on my own for the first time and I stayed in a, in a hotel in Singapore on a sort of stopover. And that was the night that John Lennon was shot, 1980. It was this total, dis- um, I'd been in a band and we'd been, you know, we've been doing Beatles songs and listening to Beatles records, which was, as I say, slightly undercover because, you know, we were all, I mean, I was, you know, I was a massive fan of the Ramones and the Pistols and the 
and that's by that stage you know the, the undertones and lots lots and lots of, of fantastic music mm. but i think this is one of the things about the beatles isn't it if you're if you're if you're interested in music and you're interested in lyrics and you're interested in the arc of of, of kind of careers it's impossible to me it's impossible not to orientate your, yourself in some way or other to what they achieved in those extraordinary seven years which now still it's still on it's still unthinkable that that amount of extraordinary music could have been created in uh, in that space of time and you know one of the joys of of being i mean i'm an unashamed beatles fan is mm. throughout one's whole life people have been telling you that you know that, that the beatles are going to somehow fade from people's memories or that the music is going to become you know so I, I the book thing is really interesting i've sort of been racking my brains to think about books that I'd, I'd that had influenced me about them and probably the first thing that i read was hunter's biography hunter okay. davis's biography which i still think is really stands up as, yeah. as a an account when i was at castle after we did the anthology we reissued his biography with great pictures in it and, and again you know a whole generation of people who maybe hadn't read that book i mean the We'll come on to talk about other books, but one of the reasons I still go back to that book is that Hunter was there. He was a really good journalist. He talked to them. It was it, you feel it's it's a book that's being made at the time that they're still, you know, the Beatles myth is still very much under construction, and, and the, you know, there's no not writing from the end point, as it were, or emotion recollected in tranquility or whatever. But um, so that's probably the first book that I can remember really reading from cover to cover that was was about the Beatles and it was and I'd say a pretty good place to start and I'm by no means I'm by no means a collector of Beatles books I mean I look on my shelves and I have got quite a few <laughs> but you know I haven't dutifully gone out and bought the Mark Lewis and worked my way through that wonderful though I'm pretty sure those books are yeah but I am struck there's something that Craig Brown says in the at the end of his more recent book, which I know we'll, we'll come on to, hmm. where he says <laughs> there are lots of good books written on the Beatles. He said, quite a lot more good books written on the Beatles than there are on my last subject, which was the Royal Family. And I did think that was actually rather a brilliant line. It's true that a little bit like, I was thinking analogies, hmm. you know, people who write about sports, you know, there's, there's now quite good writing about football. But um, for a long time, there wasn't much great writing about football, but there was a lot of amazing writing about boxing. It's, it's like I sort of feel there's something about the Beatles that, that seems to bring out, it seems to, encourage, it seems to encourage the creativity of the people who are writing about them to go that little bit further. And we'll talk, maybe talk about a few of those books that I, I think are yeah. truly exceptional. What we're here to talk about is the Bible, right? <laughs> yeah, well... We should probably start uh, talking about about the Bible, <laughs> as it were. Yeah, the the Beatles anthology book. Obviously, if we if we could start off, I suppose the best place would be for you to just just kindly share with us your background in in publishing uh, and how you arrived at a place where you were going to be involved in one of the most notorious projects, I suppose, that anyone could could be involved in, in <laughs> when it comes to to, to Beatles books. I still kind of pinched myself it was one of the mo- more remarkable things that happened to me because the story of this book obviously it, it, it arose from the the whole anthology project which was very much the brainchild of 
of Neil Aspinall, uh, the MD of Apple Corps. And the book was probably the most complex and had the most uh, difficult kind of uh, birth of any of the bits and pieces of that remarkable project. It was put together initially, a lot of the interviews were conducted by Derek Taylor, the Beatles' former press officer, and author of one of the, I think, one of the really front-ranking great Beatles books as time goes by. But uh, he died in 97, I think. It, and it was really with the team at an extraordinary company who are, I'm pleased to say, still going, although Brian Rodents, who, who set up Genesis, is no longer alive. They were an amazing team, creative team, who, who've done a lot of books um, of, of you know, The Who, The Stones, Ravi Shankar, George Harrison. They make the most exquisite, big, beautiful, you know, real fan books, you know, very expensive, often using incredibly outlandish materials and, <laughs> and um, expensive slip cases. And, I mean, if, if you're a book lover, the Genesis, browsing the Genesis catalogue is really, really worth, I mean, I love their books. So they were charged with making something that was going to be big, and definitive and visually uh, remarkable, you know, the, the, the archive of images and, uh, and, and, and documents and ephemera that, that, that the Beatles uh, archive was composed of was mm. at their disposal. They worked with an extraordinary designer, um, a guy called David Costa, formerly of the band Trees. Trees, who I think, I'm right to say, have just re-released or are re-releasing their uh, three amazing albums. Anyway, David had worked at what his company was called Wherefore Art, and he'd done uh, lots of famous album covers for Elton John and Queen. Um, and it, it, it's, I think it was very much between his visual, amazing visual imagination and the Genesis team's kind of uh, skills of marshalling and Derek Taylor's incredibly, you know, his relationship that the interviews in the book are, there is nothing that is definitive, right? Let's be no. honest. History okay. is always a, uh, history is always multiple versions, and Lord knows there is no, there's never going to be a definitive history of the Beatles. But it is kind of a, like I said before, it is a kind of an er text, a holy text. I mean, obviously they had to piece together the John bits from uh, interviews that he'd done, several long interviews. Mm. Now, where I come into the story is there had been the book had been announced. And then I think it was going to be published by Random House. And then there was a, for whatever reason, that deal fell through. And I never, I, I still don't really know the ins and outs of exactly what happened there, but it disappeared, went away again. And then it reemerged. I suppose this would be in about the year 2000, hmm. um, under the aegis of an extraordinarily interesting American publisher called Chronicle Books. And I think, again, can't, check with Neil Aspinall any longer to know exactly how that original meeting was made, but he liked the cut of their jib and he decided to give them world rights in the anthology book, which was by that stage was completely finished. It was completely laid out. It was all, but it wasn't, um, they, you know, they, they hadn't got a, a publishing deal. I suspect that the control that Neil Aspinall liked to exert had come up against a big publishing machine that said, hey, we're the publishers and we know what to do. 
So he thought, well, I'll go with quirky and fun and interesting where I can say you can, you know, these are the rules you're dealing with. It. I mean, this is very much dealing with Neil, which I'll, I'll come into him was, you know, these are the rules. This is the Beatles. Whatever you think, you know, <laughs> this is different. So anyway, we, I go to Frankfurt. It's, when would it have been? Maybe it was Frankfurt 99. Maybe it was okay. a year earlier. I hear the rumours. I'm going there. I've just taken over at Castle. Company is, has been losing a lot of money. And I'm going to Frankfurt to try and find something to basically as a sort of poster for a new kind of, I'd inherited a military history list, a reference list, kind of illustrated books list where I used to characterize, we published the fifth best book on practically every su subject under the sun. You wanted a book on macrame? Well, the fifth best book on macrame was published by Castle. <laughs> you want a book on corn dollies? My wife, Rachel, used to call it the corn dollies. Yes, there's a, corn, a Castle corn dolly list. I'd managed to, we were going to jam into and uh, the, all the Weidenfeld and Nicholson uh, illustrated list of which there were some very good books. So the idea was we're going to reinvent it and Castle was going to be the brand. And I was going to Frankfurt to try and find something that would kind of be the flagship, a flagship, a big illustrated project. And we had in the background, we knew down the right that was, we, were, we were tickling Michael Palin for a book and there were other things, but this was, um, anyway, I heard a rumor that they were, the Chronicle had this Beatles book and went to the stand and introduced myself and they said, oh, that sounds interesting. Um, and they said, do you, want to, do you want to see it? I said, yeah, I'd love to see it. Anyway, they, I have to sign an NDA and I go and sit in a room and I'm given half an hour to sit in a room and I literally go through every page and I am, I mean, it, I know it always sounds like a sort of terrible thespy thing to say, but I was kind of in tears by the end of it because it was, it's such a rich, you know, you, you think, you know, the Beatles, this is the thing. We all, we all have this sort of received wisdom about them. The scale of the book, I mean, the physical size of the book, but also the, 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 the sheer extraordinariness of the photographs, a lot of which people hadn't seen before that had come from the archive, with the brilliant way that David Costa designed it, with the overlaying of, 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 of memorabilia, of letters. Of, you felt, I felt like, you know, after half an hour, I, I, it, was, it was like essential overload that I'd, I'd spent. That is the most extraordinary illustrated book I've ever seen on one of the great, greatest subjects. And... Uh, basically I'm in so of course the next stage is I had to bring my boss in London and said I can't, I've just seen the most incredible thing I want to bid for it and so he said you know what do you what do you think you should bid I said I have absolutely no idea it's the Beatles I said I don't know <laughs> I said, I and he said well what do you think a reasonable opening bid would be I said well it's gonna gonna have to be anyway we ended up we ended up uh, I don't suppose anybody much cares uh, anymore, but we end, we offered three hundred thousand pounds, which was quite a lot of money, a lot more money than you know we were used to spending, but not a lot of money actually. I thought as an opening bid, you know, we probably get just blown out of the way. Uh, that was every you know it was because it became obviously there were people going and have you seen it? Have you been in? Did you sign the thing? Did you look? What, I mean, you know, we're all saying yeah, fucking incredible. Anyway, got back to London had and and then it was it was probably a full month later lots of phone calls and discussions and you know anyway at, at no point did they say do you want to up your bid but we d i did talk about you know we did talk about 
there were a lot there were a lot more questions anyway finally that that i was um, remember i was away up at, at a kind of conference up in up north and i got the phone call that they had decided i think a phone conversations with um a couple of people from apple hmm. not at that stage. i think jonathan clyde not at that stage um neil but anyway they decided that we were the right people um, and one of my colleagues, Michael Dover, was a very experienced illustrated book publisher as well. And he was, you know, he'd, he'd been sort of advising from the sidelines. He published, you know, Lord Snowden and all kinds of, you know, that, that sort of the old school Weidenfeld illustrated books. Um, anyway, we got the book and then the fun began because <laughs> the next thing we had to do was to go to Ovington Square and, um, and, meet, and meet Neil and and meet the, the the rest of the team. Jonathan, a very very nice Jonathan Clyde, who was uh, kind of running the, the the London office. It was fascinating, mm. and um, the really cool thing was that Neil was exuded this kind of strange authority, you know. And it's pretty cool. I mean, you, you don't need to know much about the Beatles to know that he'd been there from the very beginning. And um, and I got to know him quite well over the period of the publishing of the book. But the famous the famous story that I I, I mean I've, I've told before is you know we'd made we'd brainstormed and we were going to do you know bookshop window events and we were going to do you know stuff in Trafalgar Square and we were going to do billboards and we we put together a marketing plan and went and he just sort of looked he turned over the pages sort of and then picked it up and just put it in the bin. He said, that's not how it's going to work. He said, you know, we're the Beatles. We always go to number one. And I said, well, yeah, but we've, you know, we've got to let people know the books out. So they'd come up, and again, it's a story that I've told before, but they'd come up with the most brilliant uh, idea. He said, we're going to serialise it. We've got 84 different, um, Jeff's got 84 different publications who are going to serialise it simultaneously. He said, well, we've given them all exclusives. We've given them all bit different bits of the book to serialize different pictures. You know, I said, but that exclusives, they're going to get, you know, he said, we've got the Observer, we've got the Sunday Times, we've got the, said, that's, that's, you know, they're all going to go mad. He says, no, they won't. He said, I said, why? He said, because none of them have paid. And I can remember my head kind of spinning at the time. It was just, this was such a, I said, I, yeah, well, he said, if, you know, if they've got the Beatles and it's exclusive and other people have got it and they've not paid any money, why are they going to care? It's going to sell that. The Beatles will sell their newspaper. And that was, I have to say, it was one of the mo- moments in my life where I, I thought, you are, you've thought about this in a way. They had a, they, Neil just had this kind of, again, you know, if you can see the bandwagon, you're already too late. And he would be, he had this kind of, yes, it was a, a sort of Yoda-like quietness about him. And I think, the, I think that the, the thing about the book is that he knew, and I think everybody knew, that, and, and indeed, you know, I don't think uh, there's, there's been a book, a £35 book that's gone to number one and sold half a million copies. I don't think that's ever happened since and we knew that it would be a good book. But I think also what he, what, what he liked was, I think for, for Castle at the time, I think he knew that we were, like with Chronicle in the States, he liked the people. He liked that he could pick up the phone and there was no, nobody was going to tell him that 
in the book industry that this we did it differently and I, I guess you know his that whole way in which I mean he was really interesting he said you know the thing is about the Beatles he says I haven't had a band since 1970 so I said you know if I want to make if we want to make money we can't tour you know I've got to think of something to do and he said we're very careful about and he was I remember at the time he was talking about uh, you know they were working up an idea with Cirque du Soleil he talked about the um, you know how the each element of the anthology had been really carefully worked out to he said it's to keep and then of course the big project which was which came out that that Christmas was the was the number one album which and I, you know he's sort of saying but doesn't everybody own these songs and he said yeah but they never had them they've never had about Beatles greatest hits before and you know at that stage he was very this is a long time before streaming but you mm. can sort of sense that the whole that there was a culture there that they did really interesting things i'm fascinated we were like we all are we're all on the edge of our seats to see what peter jackson's made mm. but that that smacks to me of kind of of the, the 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 attention to detail that neil had and this book is nothing if not it has that sense of every i think he had a sense that the beatles brand was about quality i remember a friend of mine once said that the Beatles were, you know, in the 60s, if you were, you know, young and into music, you probably wouldn't. And even if the Beatles weren't your favourite band, it's like they were, they were floating up here. They were doing something that was, that was a kind of a, almost above everything else. Mm. And I remember when I was pitching the book to people internally at Castle, I said that when I read the book, what I realised was that this was... This was the myth, this was the one of the great mythological sequences of our of modern of the modern world. You know that they were, you know, involved everything from you know poverty to riches, incredible, incredible um, success, and then you know blood sacrifice, death. I mean, it was it's a sort of Arthurian cycle played out in in in, in modern clothes, and that the sense of these. I love always that sense, you know, which one do you, are you going to identify with? Which one is, which one is your Beatle? It's, it's still, and what the book did was somehow people, when people say, is the, is the Beatles anthology the best book on the Beatles? And I say, no, but I, I would say it's, if you only want to read one book on the Beatles, that's the one I would, I would give you because you'd, you'd learn more about the, the emotion and the visual impact, and the, it's a it's a visual history as much as it is a kind of a, a history of people telling their own stories. You know that that's another thing about the Beatles. They they kind of the evolution in short period of time. They are symbolic figures mm. in a in a way that I don't think any other musical act, certainly of the modern era, has has come close to matching. Yeah. And the book is a kind of a like I say, it's like a, it is a, it does feel a bit like the, this is their authorized version, right? So with everything that, that implies, take it with a pinch of salt, but there's still, you know, you still, if you, I, I, every time I go back to it, I find new and wonderful stuff. Me too. Me too. Um, it's, uh, like you say, it's something that, that I was thinking about asking you actually talking about the, the, the physical book itself. Um, for me, one of the key things is its size. Is the yeah. is is the is the way that it it, it presented. Now, 
there is some it's too big that's what a lot of people say well, it's well, too yeah, big which completely which for me misses the point now they did do you probably remember the pythons did a very similar book i think about a year or two after this we totally ripped i mean it, it was it was it was yeah we ripped that off i mean i did i did actually and i haven't got it here the next thing we did with i did with david costa was we did i said right you know going back to my as it were roots i say let's do that for punk let's right. do a 40 pound 400 page illustrated oral history of punk mm. and we did and that also sold really well um and it's now quite you know it's it's sadly not in print anymore but it's it's one of those books that if you if people find they say this was um and that was again just one of the i mean i really enjoyed working with neil but i made a, a kind of a lifelong friend with david through that process and I, um, i'm still in touch with him still that that's the very cool thing i think about the beatles is they work with good neil was very had i mean you know considering that neil had been the roadie right he he's, he turned out to be an extraordinary astute managing director and and and, and saved them you know saved the brand from the mire of the of the of the end of you know the conflagration at the end of the 60s and alan klein and, the, and all that all of that nightmare and somehow managed to managed to keep the brick beetles cool their, their reputation somehow untarnished it's it's i mean he, you know he was like the high priest of the of the of the church of beetle um, but did it in such a, a very cool kind of mystical a uh, very Eastern way with, without having any bullshit. I mean, you, that's the thing about Neil. There was absolutely no bullshit about him. And David was, yeah, David's just one of the, he's a, a brilliant designer of books and of anything. But this, um, this was the sort of the cathedral, I guess. So, yes, yeah, so the Pythons did do a, a paperback version of it where they kind of, where they, you know, a more of a kind of toilet friendly book, if you will. Um, was there never a thought of doing that with this? Was that something that was there? Was it only ever going to be this one kind of object? Yeah. I mean, there was that, the genius <laughs> again. It's like, there no, not even, don't even think about it. We made it this size for a reason. There, there yeah. was a paperback of it. There yeah. did, it was, there's a paperback version of it, but um, that was a big paperback and big paperbacks are, it make even less sense, frankly, than, than big hardbacks. Big Hardback was supposed, it was supposed to be, and I've always said this, it was like, when I first saw it, I was on my own, and it was in front of me, and I spent time with it, and I turned, it, it, was, it was loose leaves, it wasn't bound, and that, that stayed with me, and I, you know, it's, 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 its size is, enables you to do things, it enables you to get a huge number of words into it, mm. I don't even know now how many but you know it's 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 um, well over i think 150,000 words and you know more images than you could possibly imagine you know you need the you need the size to do it the the idea of ex- abstracting it and doing a little sort of cheap and cheap it was just that's just not that's that was not in neil's plans ever and the paper even the paperback was i think was quite a difficult negotiation right and of course the paperback sold but didn't sell it to anywhere near the same degree as the, as the, as the hardback. And it, as I say, it went, it went to number one and stayed there for quite some time. And, and it, it kind of created a, a nice resonance with the, you know, the one album when it came out. What do you think of the kind of particular strengths and weaknesses of it? Is there anything that, that leaps out that you particularly like or, or think maybe that, that might have gone a, a different I mean, way? The, the, 
you have to say that the John element of it, as brilliant as the work Genesis did, is it's it's more familiar when you're reading it than than the other than the other three's um, interviews, and there is a there's a sense that they're they're performing for this book, and he clearly isn't. And you know, you'd have to also say that they are quite a lot that doesn't really get addressed. Or I mean, I'm thinking about the the, the Craig Brown and the, the kind of brilliant forensic attempt to figure out what happened when John and Brian went to Spain. You know that, that he does in that book from all the different biographies. You know, here it's it. You know, a lot of the more controversial stuff I, I think is a little bit. You know, it's what you would expect. It's it's a very, very, very good official history. And I think there are bits of it which are sometimes you are surprised by how. I mean, I, I, I think what I like about it is that, uh, you know, because they're, they're obviously relaxed. You know, I'm, I'm, I always go back when people say the thing that stuck in my mind, it's not, you know, that bit on the last page where Ringo says, you know, we were... In the old days, we'd have the hugest hotel suites, the whole floor of a hotel and the floors would end up in the bathroom just to be with each other. And I, it's, it's one of my, I, that image of the Beatles all being huddled together and living through something that had never happened to anybody else. It's the, I mean, a bit to Elvis, but Elvis, there wasn't four Elvises doing it at the same time. So I think it's, I think it's at its best because it it's, it's, comes out of a deep affection and, you know, there's been a period of time and they're, they're reflecting back on it. It's sometimes why the, 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 you know, the books that were written at the time have a kind of an immediacy. Mm. But yeah, I, I, mean, I, I mean, I think visually it's just, it's still, I look at it and it, I don't think it's, I think one, it's one of the things that's really interesting about David Costa's design sense. It doesn't, I can't see this book dating. And that's a really curious thing about, and I remember having this, discussion with with neil about it and it's it's something that's sort of haunted me ever since he says we were saying would you want to do a different jacket on the book and he in the end i think they did agree to doing a black jacket for the paperback but he said why is it the book jackets change all the time he said you know the white album or abbey road they always look the same for the you know and i said it's such an interesting idea why why are people always re-jacketing the the you know the the great Gatsby or and I said it is one of the the really different one of the huge differences between the the two industries that even though it's I mean, and it's fascinating isn't it how vinyls come back and people are mm. now rebuying having the vinyl that they sold and then bought a CD they're now rebuying the vinyl because they they kind of want the iconic object again I'm, I mean you know that it would be very it would have been very naff of Neil to get to have this book album shaped. Mm. But there is a sort of an expand, a, a kind of a generosity and a madness, a sort of sublimity. You know, it's like it's there are very. It's hard to imagine you, you would, could have a bigger book, really. <laughs> but you know, I suppose that goes back to his with the Beatles, we do things our own way. I, I think it's interesting what you say that the kind of the togetherness. I think one thing about again, maybe this was something that was pushed because of the the kind of official nature of it but that that quote that you read from Ringo at the end there all of the quotes in the last part of the book are all the four of them but they're all talking about closeness and about their relationship a lot of those quotes in in the, the last kind of section of the book 
So it's almost like the book wants to leave you with that image that Ringo almost heartbreakingly yeah, yeah. described. No, astronauts, you know, which I think was, was also, you know, that's what he said. We were like astronauts. And I think that sense of them having been and done things that, that were almost unimaginable, but still, still somehow coming out of it human and friends, you know, it was all about love. Yeah, I mean, why wouldn't you? If you can edit your life, if you can edit your myth, <laughs> and that's what it is. It's, it's, what's great about the book is it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful piece of myth-making. What's less great about it, I guess, suppose, in the end, is it doesn't have a critical... It, you know, it talks about the breakup. It talks about the, the, the one or two of the controversial things, but it's, 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 you're not going to get to the, uh, the truth. It's just not how it works. But I, I yeah, I mean, I, it's funny. Every time I pick it up, as I say, I go back and I, there, are, there, are, there are images that just stunned me that I'd forgotten that we had in there. Mm. And I mean, you know, I got to know it pretty well. You know, I just, I, I think for, for my kids too, you know, who've all grown up as they do, you know, what's all the fuss about the Beatles? And then they listen to the Beatles and then they read the book and then they kind of, they see the movies and they think, yeah, this is pretty, it's <laughs> just pretty cool. I'm very, very proud of, to have been, you know, it won the Illustrated Book of the Year at the British Book Awards and uh, going there with Neil and, and getting that. Wow. Uh, I've still got the trophy, the little nib that you get. That was, a, that was an amazing moment. And it was then that, that I remember mm. one of my favourite stories that Neil, Paul had just brought out um, his book of poems for Faber and Faber. I said, most of the book is actually, it's not really poems. I mean, there are some poems in there, but mostly it's just Beatles lyrics. And he said, yeah. And I said, um, I mean, why, why would he want to do that? And he said, who wrote the Beatles songs? And I said, um, well, uh, what do you mean? He said, well, who's credited with writing all the Beatles songs? I said, well, Lennon and McCartney. And then there's a really long pause. <laughs> and I just said, what? You mean... You mean he's what he's doing is saying these are my songs, these and he's saying, yeah, <laughs> and he's saying, but I mean we kind of know that anyway. And he said, I said, what? Why would that? What, you know what? He just said, I said because he, he's still worried that people don't know that he wrote, you know, Eleanor Rigby, and he just looked looked at me and said, welcome to my world. <laughs> Such a world weary, wonderful. I remember him saying that once, you know, you know, like if you make a decision, you've only got to do that. I've got to talk to, I've got to talk to Paul's people. I've got to talk to George's people. I've got to talk to um, whoever Ringo is at that particular moment. And I've got to talk to Yoko. Oh no. (laughs) (laughs) So I said, it's not easy getting all those people to say yes around a table, John. That was the thing. I think it was, it was a kind of remarkable what they achieved. Well, certainly what he achieved. Mm. I don't, and I think Jonathan Clyde is still there sort of quietly in, in a world where everything is now free and people are, I, I think they've, I think they've behaved pretty, I think they've managed the, the Beatles. Uh, I still feel that it's, you know, the, the books, the anthology, the albums themselves that you don't feel it's being, it, it's being tarnished too much. No, no. I think there's been, a, obviously he left, you know, only about six or eight months, I think, before he, he passed away. But I think the yeah. the 
the kind of beats of 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 Apple, the essence of Apple, essentially remains the same um, in his yes. in, in his absence, which I think is testament to the the job that he did really while he was there. Yeah, um, it's just, it, it, it felt like a very strong culture. I mean, there were always kind of slightly mad people on the on you know, marvelous Jeff Baker. I mean, was slow, I mean, there's always been mad people, but Neil was definite. And you know what? He I, I said so your book Neil and he said it's never going to happen and I said come on you know you must never going to happen um, really? and I don't know I mean I'm sure I know that I've heard from various people that Roag best uh, and that the, the Beatles Museum up in Liverpool that there's all kinds of stuff kicking around but I'd be I'd sort of I think you know Nick, that was what that's one of the most remarkable things he was unbelievably loyal even though at times, as, you, as we know from his own accounts and that they're in the anthology and other books, you know, that, that he could be treated like everybody around the Beatles. That's one of the great joys of, um, as time goes by, you know, Derek Taylor's brilliant memoir um, of the, 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 the madness, you know, of, the, of just the fear of what he calls them, you know, the four of them and the abusive, sometimes abusive, relationship that they had with the people particularly towards the end where it, you know it all, it all started to get back acrimonious and apple was losing money and but i sort of feel that that neil was as good as his word you know he never you know he did he could have lord knows the stories that he could have told but he didn't chose not to and did the thing he he, pres, he preserved the legacy right he worked really really hard to preserve the legacy and the world and the and, and the, the beatles reputation Beatles fans, I think, owe him a huge debt. I agree, absolutely agree. So you mentioned um, Derek Taylor there. Let's let's talk about some other Beatles books. I mean, I completely agree. That's a remarkable book. Madness is a wonderful way of kind of summing it up. Is there any, it... I mean, it's it's. I'm a lazy cunt. He opens one chapter. It's just. I mean, it's one. It's just one of my. And you know, he's he's just got that fabulous fruity 60s and i know that david costa always said he was you know he absolutely loved derek he said you know derek was just a not only a great raconteur and a, and a great publicist but also just a you know really really funny warm good human being mm. uh, and you know mixed up in absolute and that's the joy that you get the you get the mad energy of the beatles out of as time goes by but better almost than any in any other memoir i mean like i say there's some of that in 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 hunter's biography the other book i suppose at the opposite end of the scale which is Mm. the one i go i still go back to is the great revolution in the head by ian mcdonald which i can remember jeff taylor saying well don't mention that i mean paul doesn't like that book (laughs) yeah he doesn't does Um, he no well you know i think it's the most I mean, I think he's a brilliant, he's a, I think Ian MacDonald was a brilliant, if troubled writer. Um, and it's his, it's, it's his masterpiece as well. I mean, that forensic kind of detail in the book. But I find myself going back to it quite often. What he does is what exactly what the Beatles anthology doesn't do, is he, he judges and he contextualises. When he sort of turns around and says, you know, it's, that Alan Wallace is John Lennon's greatest achievement. You, you know, you're thinking, well, <laughs> but then, you know, he carefully and painstakingly tells you the musical, lyrical, cultural reasons why that's the case. Mm. So I always feel that they're almost like at the other end. 
I mean, the, the Lewis and Butts, which I've confessed to you, I haven't read. And the only reason I haven't is I sort of feel, I'm sure I would find them, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I would find them really fascinating. I mean, I am interested. But the, the kind of the, the authorised version and this, this sort of brilliant, critical, uh, historical, sociological text that puts the Beatles in context. Mm-hmm. And it's full of such, full of strong, you know, strong opinions. <laughs> I love it. He's just, I just was reading, I've, I'd forgotten this before, but he, he basically says, you know, this is, yeah, this is great. There's, very, there's a great deal more to be said about the catastrophic decline of pop and rock criticism but not here. (laughs) All that matters is that when examining the following chronology of 60s pop, readers are aware that they are looking at something on a higher scale of achievement than today's. Music which no contemporary artist could claim to match in feeling, variety, formal invention, and sheer out-of-the-blue inspiration. That the same can be said of other musical forms, most obviously classical and jazz, confirms that something in the soul of Western culture began to die during the late 60s. Whoa. That's bold. And I think that's what I, you know, it's kind of what I love about, I mean, the, the chronology in this book is, is astonishing. You know, Beatles, UK pop, current affair, culture. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you want uh, to the, why are the Beatles important, Dad, kind of question, and just say, just, just, you know, spend a bit of time with that. Well, it's, it's amazing you mentioned Dad's because I, I got that book when I was about, um, so I'm 37 now. So I got it a little bit after it came out when I was about 12. And I used to go and my, my parents divorced when I was young. So Saturday was, was dad day. And my dad was born in 1948. So it was prime kind oh, right. of beat, beat um, And uh, he, and I had that book, which a lot of it for a kind of 12 year old, I didn't quite get it initially. No. That, that chronology at the back, I've got, lovely warm memories of sitting with him and he would tell me it would obviously have all the, the Beatles stuff and the pop stuff and then the news stuff. And he would elaborate, yeah. Oh, well that the Biafra war or, or the Abba fan there would just be, he would tell me that, you know, that the kind of story behind that. Uh, and it's remarkable. It, it, it really, I can't think of any other Beatles book that, that does that. Um, it, it plays no, it, it, in context. I think that's I think that's the that's the, the great genius of the book is that apart from the fact that, that you know the writing is so is so strong and the opinions are so kind of robust and he says you know he some of he, there's some some songs that you know he really doesn't like and he tells you why but you know from a pers- perspective of having really thought and researched it it's not just sort of knee jerk it's kind of it's I think not just on again we go come back to this remarkable fact that the Beatles have generated so many really, really extraordinary books. And you'd think that there's not much more to say, wouldn't you? You'd think that, you know, with, as I say, with, with, with Lewison's kind of forensic attention to the detail and, but it would appear not. Revolution Ahead also, just, just one last point on that is I, I did an, an episode on that book with, um, the author Chris Power that I know you've had on oh, yeah. Um, yeah, listed Chris, yeah. and also recently published a really excellent novel. When I posted a lonely man, a lonely man which is a, yeah, which was a, a, a nice break for me to read that when I'm buried in Beatles books, as you can imagine. Um, and when I posted that episode, the reaction that that episode got the comments of people, you know, kind of 70% violently in favor of it. And 30% of people that, 
felt that it was overrated maybe or that you know he he didn't love the Beatles the way that an author should love the Beatles but it's fascinating how I think that one book does generate the most debate and kind of uh views really than any other Beatle book it, it, I think that's testament again to the the, the power of the writing of a revolution in the head it's almost every page you open it and there's, a, there's a, I mean I've got lots of bits underlined in here but I can see that he's he's tough on both of both Lennon and McCartney at various times. Is that just talking about the long and winding road? He's just said it's one of the most beautiful things McCartney ever wrote, which I think is true. Its mm. words too are among his most poignant, particularly the reproachful lines of the four, the brief four bar middle section. A shame Lennon didn't listen more generously. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's quite a lot of because the because the Beatles are. I mean, there is always the danger of that. Of, of of that sort of kowtowing and, and, and kneeling at the shrine and you know it, it's like I'd, I'd say I'd, I'd be disappointed if a Beatles fan didn't like the anthology it was a book very much designed to fix to give a richness to the, their own self-mythologizing instincts mm. but you know that's why it's amazing just to have a, a really great critic he doesn't like when, while my ever forget this, while my guitar gently weeps enshrines in its plodding sequence rock's typical rhythmic overstatement and slow rate of harmonic change. The energetic topicality of pop is here supplanted by a dull grandiosity predictive of the simplified stadium music of the seventies and eighties. <laughs> wow, yeah. But here's you know that's another thing. Um, you know, endless discuss rock versus pop with the were the were the with the Beatles why did, the Beatles didn't become a you know they didn't become a rock band oh. um, discuss one of McDonald's great skills is he's able to compare them to contemporary uh, you know classical composers and the sheer kind of brilliance of you know strawberry fields forever what they're actually creating on sergeant pepper and and right through I mean it's it, it's, it's a really again. I, as long as I'm alive and I'm listening to the Beatles, I'll be I'll go back to it because there'll be things that I notice or forget, or and that's that's a pretty good thing to say about a book. There aren't. I don't think there's, and I'm not the you know I'm not uh, I'm not an aficionado, so I don't know of any book that performs the same function to the same degree for any other band, and mm. um, that's a pretty amazing thing to say. Mm. And that's to do with McDonald. I mean, it's to do yeah. with McDonald. It's to do with the Beatles to do with that, the, the extraordinary quality of the music. You know, um, I have had so much fun publishing Dave Hill's memoir from Slade, but nobody's going to be doing, let's be honest, nobody's going to do a revolution in the head on, on Slade's many fine songs that they have. No, but you, you could do a, a great book on Slade in Flame, which I think is... Uh... Oh, so brilliant. Well, we're, we're doing, um, we're about to launch on the site, on the Unbound site, mm. Come on, where the noise, which is a, a a book about glam, Slade and glam fashion, okay. and Slade and Flame will have a whole that'll have a whole section. Well, that's and, good. I mean, obviously, that is also the music. I think that they, they, they are they're underrested, they're underestimated musically. Slade definitely. I agree. And they were obviously all massive Beatles fans, very influenced by the Beatles. They were, they were. Anyway, this but, is the Slade podcast is still to to come. I feel sure, but. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine that. Um, Imagine that. Let's let's look at some other uh, kind of Beatle books there. So we should probably discuss Craig Brown's one, two, three, four, which I'd love to. Yeah, which I think is a 
it's it's a remarkable story in itself. I mean, in the last month, it's been serialised on Radio 4. That didn't happen forever in the head. And, you know, of all the other, the countless Beatle books that have come out of varying quality, you know, in the last, say, post the anthology book in the last 20-odd years, they haven't achieved that kind of, that, that level of, um, of, of notoriety, really. Um, firstly, if you could just, just share your view on, on Craig, Craig Brown's book, and what do you put its success down to? Um, I, I absolutely adored the whole thing, I have to say. I mean, I, I, I know that Andy was winced slightly at he, he, what he feels was the unduly harsh treatment of Yoko. Mm. And I can, yeah, I can sort of see that. Again, like I was saying, you would have thought, surely there's very little left to say. And yet somehow the genius of Craig Browning, he, this is something he did with, um, with his previous book on Princess Margaret. He finds anecdotes and stories and somehow by putting them together in this sequence and through the kind of beautifully precise way that he writes and tells the stories, he finds really imaginative ways of, of taking material where you think you know, like so... As I mentioned earlier, you know, the famous story of what happened between Brian and John, if anything, in Spain. Mm. And he tells that brilliantly by almost by doing a, a graph of all the, all the various, well, there's, there's that, but also the, the terrible scene where John Lennon beats up, I can't remember who it is now, that the accounts of that story, John Lennon's own account, the, the various people's biographies, the, the other people who were there. From that point of view, it's a book about it's a book about Beatles books and mm. about the Beatles mythology, but it's also, I think, quite movingly personal. In ways, you know, he goes to the Beatles, the two National Trust properties, John and Paul's houses. It's very, very, very funny stories about not being allowed to report. You know, not being you know, why are you taking notes? <laughs> the guides get really paranoid about him taking notes. He goes to Hamburg where. You know, the Beatles industry is barely exists. You know, most of the places don't exist anymore. So there's not a kind of thriving. So you're, you're building up a, a much more complex view, not just of what happened through the, the, the narrative of the book, the story of what happened to the Beatles. And he picks really, really great stories, some of them familiar, some of them not familiar, and puts them in this interesting order so that you're also reflecting on the mythology of the Beatles and the how the Beatles industry has, has, has presented them. And it, it has a, also, uh, I think, a really beautiful sequence, the last sequence in the book, which is, he does a, 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 several points through the book, he does this thing of what if this hadn't happened? What if, you know, John and Paul hadn't met? And he, he's continually teasing you with that sort of, um, it might very easily have, have, have happened if Paul had decided not to bunk off his job, that you know, they might not have had the first gig, all of that stuff. But at the end of the book, he does this beautiful sequence where he, he runs Brian Epstein's life backwards. He sort of starts with the, the, the death and, then, and the funeral and then runs all the way back to him going down the, the, the stairs right back at the beginning of their career and seeing them for the first time. Mm. And that sounds tricksy, but it, he kind of pulls it off, I think, in a way, because it's, I suppose the whole book is an exercise in, you think you know the Beatles, well, let me defamiliarize you and, and bring you closer to the, to, the, to the absolute magic of 
why they are still relevant. There's a, and he quotes, I love this, the, the, uh, the famous TV philosopher, Brian McGee, who says at the end of the book, I've got it in front of me, does anyone seriously believe that Beatles music will be an unthinkingly accepted part of daily life all over the world in the 2000s? <laughs> Brian <laughs> McGee, philosopher and politician in The Listener, February 1967. That's the epigraph to the book. So I think it's a, a, a book that's born of a deep love of the, of the band and the music. And I think it's, it, I can't imagine anyone who, it's also, I mean, what he's doing, he's sort of invented a new form, I think. You know, it worked for Princess Margaret. It's work, it works even, in my view, even better for the Beatles. Mm. Uh, although the Beatles are, to some degree, will always escape being pinned down and being explained. The, thing, the great thing, this is the difference between being kind of a, a celebrity, which I suppose you'd say Princess Margaret is. You can't really do anything with Princess Margaret's memory. You can read the book and you can think about it. The Beatles, you can go downstairs and put on Abbey Road. That's why I think the epigraph is there. It's like, yes, this is stuff is in the marrow of our culture and it's not going to shift any time soon. What do you put its success down to? Do you think there's anything about the timing okay, of it? I, 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 it's really interesting. I think his, I think perhaps it was because the last book was a bit of a slow burn. It sort of took everybody by surprise mm. and then suddenly, boom, Everybody was talking about the book on Princess Margaret. Um, and I think, I have to say, you know, Craig Brown on the Beatles is, is a pretty appetising prospect. And it, it's one of those books that, in my view, really doesn't disappoint. I hadn't read it, but I always, you know, I, I read it especially, Joe, for this podcast, because I, I knew you, that John. we would want to talk about it. Not a, not a moment, regretted not a moment of it. it was, it's, it's, and I'm sort of still reeling a little bit from it because it's, it, it, has a, an, a, it has a way of making, it is definitely does defamiliarise you and it makes you feel closer to the reality of the stories in a way that I guess that, that there is a sort of way that Beatles books tend to, you go over the same things again and again and they, you become very, very, um, you become, you know, yes, yeah, we know that, we know that, we know that, we know that. But this book really, in the way that it's, it's for, formally, it's got, I mean, it got great reviews and it won the... It won the Bailey Gifford Prize for Best Nonfit, which is quite a surprise. You know? mm. I mean, it's not surprising that it's a, it's, a, it's a marvellous book, but it's, I mean, why, why now? Why the Beatles now? I don't know. Mm. I mean, I don't know. Maybe a lot of people have been listening to the Beatles in lockdown. I think. I mean, why wouldn't you? Uh, that was a point I made when I was chatting with Andy about this, was that, because um, he felt that it was, as, as you might listen to, he felt that it was, um, it was, it was kind of the moment that generation of people of, of Craig Brown's kind of age, it was a book for them initially. And then, it, it, you know, it's appeal obviously broadened to, to everyone. Um, and maybe because it was published March of last year. So yeah. on that initial, I, I do, I, I, I think it, it, I think there may be, a, there may be an element of that, that it's, if the Beatles are important to you, and they're important to millions of people and still are, then it, it kind of is, it's a pretty easy sell. You know, I'm, it's one of those books I'm struck that a lot of people I know have read. And I just think maybe there is some sort of strange connection with the fact that people were spending more time at home, more time reading, more time listening to music, more time looking for comfort, looking for things that reminded of them, themselves of who they were 
maybe reminded themselves of, of the past and you know that, that it, it, like when we published at the beginning you know it was, a, it was a turn of the millennium when we published the Beatles anthology it felt like a kind of a moment it was you know 30 years since they'd, they'd split and here was this sort of monolithic kind of I mean as I said before cathedral dedicated to their memory that feel like a great them, and then the number ones came out, and suddenly that you know everybody's listening to Beatles music again, even though you know we've kind of all done it many times before. It's 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 so yeah, I don't know. I I do think that it, it seems like a coincidence, doesn't it, that it should have come out if you wanted a lockdown read that was both challenging and comforting and nostalgic, but also kind of like I say that the odd thing about it is it's books about the Beatles tend to always also become books about the 1960s and about the post-war creativity and um, what's happened to this country. And you, you know, you can't help jarring the jarring of the strange national trust kind of Craig Brown. And, you know, the, the Germans don't seem to mind, you know, the DBS Beatles used to be here, but now they're not. And, and, you know, we're trying to build these sort of strange fake shrines and, and that he's he's brilliant at capturing all of that kind of slightly uneasy and uneasy relationship with nostalgia, and uh, and yet captures still the sort of the the sort of freshness of the of the of the of, of the music and the text themselves. And you know there are, as I mean, Andy famously, there's some br- some of the world's greatest uh, footnotes in this book. I think that the, Andy uh, told the one you know the brilliant footnote about, about Cliff Richard playing buttons. <laughs> In some pantomime, the, the same week that uh, that um, Strawberry Fields <laughs> came out. Yeah, and you know, just little cameos. It's really interesting what he does that, that are really affecting the story of Helen Shapiro in the book. He finds really interesting ways of unlocking the stories by making her the sort of the, the focus. Or Melanie Coe, the, the the girl who who disappears, who, who McCartney writes, she, she's leaving home about. And te- you know, he's got that kind of brilliant ability to to find the right the telling fragment and put it next to something else and that suddenly you know there's a sort of arc of energy between these two previously unconnected things and you think um, yeah, i'd never thought about that that's a pretty cool thing to do and, and you know dealing with this incredibly apparently familiar material but um, making it really not for me feel not familiar at all as i say he's kind of he's kind of as i say sort of established a, a rather brilliant new template i don't know where i wonder what he'd do next it's kind of fascinating what would you get him to do i mean you wouldn't it wouldn't be as interesting i think quite maybe i don't know maybe you could do it for the stones but i don't think he would you know i think well the the, the key thing there is is that the Beatles story is finished the stone story is you could sort of say it's, is not uh, finished. You know what? It's it's uh, that was another. That's another. That's another Neil Aspinall classic. He said, you know, the Beatles have got a beginning, middle, and an end. And he said, you know, that that's that's what makes that's both the curse and the and the huge advantage that they they have. And that's I mean that thing about the Beatles being over. I'm I'm always again Derek Taylor's brilliant and all that stuff about you know being the the Beatles, the Beatles are no longer the Beatles. And he's kind of slightly tongue-in-cheek in his optimism about them all. He said, I'm sure they'll be back on a stage. They won't be the Beatles, but they'll all be back on a stage. They're all getting on terribly well. And this is whenever it was, 1973. <laughs> alas, alas, yeah. not quite. Um, I think the, yeah. the, the thing about the Craig Brown book for me is 
it brought home and uh, you know I, I you know I, I agree with Andy's assessment and others assessment that you know there are issues with it but yeah it's the story i think the beatles is the one of the greatest stories and you know it is one of the things about doing the podcast, uh, just bringing it slightly back onto me for only briefly, is you know, great podcasts are about you know, I think are about great stories, and I think the modicum of you know success I've had with the podcast is because the Beatles is the best story, and I think the Craig Brown book reminds us that actually, okay, there's the the kind of Mark Lewison thing of this is when the, you know, you can do the, the kind of who do you think you are thing and trace back all of their Irish roots and bring it right up to the end. But Craig Brown picks out, doesn't he, all these little... Here's, here's, here's why I love the Craig Brown. And I, I totally get, you know, I, I say I'm, I'm coming at this as a, as a fan, but mm. also really in the end as a, as a fan of, of a great writer. He paints this brilliant portrait. I mean... Again, this was new to me. It may be that people who've spent more time reading in depth Beatles biographies, but he paints a brilliant portrait of Jane Asher and her family in their house in Wimpole Street. This captures, I think, some of what the book is, does that almost no other Beatles book I've read has done. If I could be any Beatle at any time, I would be Paul in his Wimpole Street years, living with Jane, cosseted by her family, blessed by luck, happy with life, alive to culture, adored by the world and with wonderful songs flowing as if by magic from my brain out through the piano. I want to hold your hand. I'm looking through you, the things we said today, and I love her. We can work it out here, there, and everywhere yesterday. So, that's, I just find that, I think that's very, A, I think it's a brilliant, but to be able to think if I was ever going to, where would I, which Beatle would I want to be? At what moment would I want to be a Beatle? And that is, a, it's just lovely. And that's that's the sort of the focus pull that that book enables, you know. Oh yeah, that is God. That that's and yet you know didn't nothing last forever as he goes on to say. Absolutely. Um, to conclude, then, I mean, is, is there anywhere maybe with a, a publishing hat on now? Is there anywhere that you think uh, Beatles books need to go? <laughs> <laughs> what, is uh, there anywhere? Well, is there any virgin snow out there that, that, that needs to be explored? Is there something that would, that would draw I, you in? I would love, Apple Core, if you're listening, I would love, I still think there's a, an immense amount of interesting stuff in the visual archive that I think would be, I think, you, I think there's still, a, it, it, you know, not, not an anthology, but a, a kind of a, a sort of an archive of, a visual archive of, of the Beatles. It's all the stuff that, 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 that David was brilliant at, at putting around the main story. I, I think there's just a, a fascination with, there was a, there's a story in the book, there was some huge warehouse where, you know, they ended up storing all George's 21st birthday presents because there was so, so many of them. They, there was no possibility that they could be opened. But I think there was, there's a, if ever a band had an interesting archive to be mined it would be the Beatles and I, I just wonder if that I know David's told me that there's loads of stuff that they that was never got into the anthology because there was wasn't the room to do it um I don't know I mean you know in terms of putting the Beatles in their in their context as, as you say you've got it's hard to imagine that any more exhaustive biographies are to be written but the Craig Brown maybe points towards the fact that you know, if you get a, if you get a brilliant writer who 
has a way of telling the story. There's, there's a book I'd really, I, I had and I lost that I was given and it's called Strings on a Beatles Bass. And it was about how the Beatles transfixed Russian teenagers in the 60s. And it was a sort of a story of them having Russian bands. And I mean, I, I know I had it and I can't find it anymore. And I've tried to get copies of it. I mean, I don't think it was ever published in the UK. We looked, I mean, it, it was sent to me because they were, you know, we were at that stage at Castle looked like we were doing Beatles books, which I mean, would have loved to have done more. I mean, you know, maybe there's a brilliant story about the Beatles in other cultures and their impact mm. in other cultures, you know, that isn't about what was that, what was, what was John's relationship with his mother really like, uh, you know, the, the stuff that we, that feels maybe the kind of the, that's the, this mythological, as you say, this amazing story, how, what's that, what, what was that, what's been that impact in, in completely other and different cultures? I, I certainly think the Russian thing, I, I've always thought that would be a, that would be a fascinating book to read. Almost everything I liked about the, about the Craig Brown book, the new David Mitchell novel, mm. which is about uh, um, set in Soho's in the, in the 60s, about a, a band. While there's much in it that I really, really liked, I mean, he's a great writer and I love his work. There's something sort of, there's something sort of depressingly familiar and ordinary about, oh, here we are in the colony room. Here we are sort of doing sound checks. Here we are kind of, you know, taking, and I mean, I, chapeau to, to Craig Brown for being able to kind of just, like I say, make you feel like you were in those, at those parties you know, with Kenneth Williams. I mean, I mean, there's so many brilliant little things in the book. I, I suppose I've completely forgotten about the good old days, which was this terrible musical, uh, musical sort of BBC that we used to, you know, bore us all rigid on, on, on Saturday evenings. It's his own, it's his own memories as well, which, which enliven it. So I think there's always, like any great set of myths, you know, the, the capacity for those myths to be reinvested with energy and um, and beauty and and meaning are probably endless that's pretty astonishing for for you know if you think about as i say that that the length of time the length of time that they were doing it is so short but the impact is endless there's a remarkable book actually which um hunter davis wrote uh about the quarry men which uh, yes I don't know if you've ever read that. It's not in print anymore. Um, it came out about, um, not long after the anthology, but 2001. And it's, it's fantastic because it looks at the lives of these, you know, four or five essentially kind of sort of unremarkable men that were in the Quarrymen with John and then with Paul. And it, it just tells their live stories of getting married and having kids and working and etc and living these quite ordinary lives at the same time these two guys that they were you know obviously friends with have got this other kind of crazy you know the craziest it's life it's sort of rosencrantz and guildenstern are dead aren't they it's that that sort of idea it's that brilliant these are the the the, the, the sort of what well, it's yeah no i've never read that book, but that's exactly and that that in a funny kind of way that that sort of idea is i suppose is what you get a lot of in the Craig Brown, lots, lots of just sort of dotting stuff around that isn't about the main, about the main characters. Mm. Um, I must dig that. It's, it's a shame it's not in print, but I'm, I'm sure it's available somewhere. And there's a remarkable bit, obviously, where two thirds of the way through, these five men come downstairs on 
cold December morning in 1980 when they're all 40, like John, and the radio goes on and suddenly their friend's dead. Uh, you know, and, and it ties in where they all are at, at that point in at the start of yeah. uh, of the eighties, um, and then and it, it it finishes with them reuniting and you know touring as the Quarry Men from about nineteen ninety seven onwards. But that's not anywhere near as interesting as the the kind of the ordinariness of their lives in contrast to this this great story that's going on. I mean, imagine that in the background of your of your life the whole time. You're going about yeah. your business, and then there's there's your mate John and your mate Paul that uh, doing a bedding for peace one minute, and then they're on. You know, you know, it's just it must just be such a strange existence that every day you're you're you know you open your newspaper over your cornflakes, and John's doing something else crazy with with Yoka that was just this guy in a check shirt, you know, yesterday <laughs> that you were playing guitar with. That must be such yeah. a. Uh, so yeah, it, hopefully it will get it will get re um, reprinted at some point. I, I'll definitely check that out. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, you know, any, any man who stands up and says there's nothing more to be said about the Beatles will be proved wrong. Um, because of, of, in a way, that's exactly that, that, that Quarryman story is exactly right, that we, so many people have got their own relationships to it. And you can go downstairs and put on the, the, the music and you're, you're right back there in the room. Well, John, I think that's, a, that's quite a an apt way to to conclude our conversation i've i've so enjoyed learning about this this cathedral of of beetle literature um hopefully you've enjoyed going back to that particularly uh, fraught point in your life it's really one of the great highlights of my, certainly of my publishing career and also just to just of life generally i mean i i felt like i say david cost has become a friend as a result of it and that's a very important relationship and and you know neil aspinall it's a such an interesting and and particularly i think at that time i, I learned a hell of a lot f- about how to behave in those you know when, if you've got something that is beyond price really is what he, what he was always saying you know the beatles will always be different mm. they'll always go to number one and although that might sound like sort of braggadocio and overweening self-belief it, it happened again and again. It was a kind of, I think he understood that there was this magical quality because I suppose he'd lived through, like I said earlier, you know, stuff that nobody else had ever seen. He was there, you know, in the background watching what was happening to his friends. It's an amazing story. It is. Thank you so much for your time, John, and for sharing the stories of Apology. Huge pleasure.